You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. That was good. That was good. Andy's got you good warmed up. It's nice to come out after Andy. It's good to have you here with us today. If you're at home watching right now, we want to welcome you to Kingsway. We're really glad you're tuning in, whether it's now or later on down the week. We're finding more and more people tuning in later on down the week, and so we're just glad you're giving us a little bit of your time today. So we're in a series that is intentionally going to make us uncomfortable. Welcome to Kingsway. We're really glad you're here. Now, I want to be very clear as we go through the series. I'm going to spend the first really first quick few minutes summarizing where we were last week to build on that. And I just want you to know, I don't want anybody feeling guilty. I've had great conversations with really good godly people who feel guilty after last week. That is not the goal of this series. What I want you to feel is conviction. What I want you to do is wrestle with God. And you may come to different conclusions than I do about the best ways to live life. That's totally fine. As long as your conclusions are based off God's word, I don't care. Have at it. I just want you to wrestle with God over texts in the Bible that are eating me up, and I want them to eat you up because I want you to stand before your heavenly Father one day and say, I did the best that I could with all that you gave me to please you, Father. That's what I want at the end of the day. So that's what we're trying to do in this series. Let me bring you up to speed real quick on what we covered last week. I'm going to build on it this week. So last week, we used this one text at first Timothy, and we kind of use it as our proof text for the whole message. Here it is, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 says this, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Aren't you glad you came to Kingsway today? So, here it is. The basic bottom line of this text is letting us know that we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy that comes right out of the Bible, John chapter 10, verse 10. And therefore, Satan is trying to trick us and set us up with traps. At one point, Paul actually says, you know what? You can actually see the enemy's schemes. You're not oblivious to them, so quit stepping in them. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you see a bear trap there. You should think to yourself, huh, I should walk around that. Because if I step in that, it's not going to go well for me. That's the whole idea of what Paul is trying to get to here. And you need to think of it like bait on a hook, right? You ever go fishing? Any of you enjoy fishing? And for some reason, you ever think to yourself, why in the world is that fish attracted to that beautiful, shiny thing bobbing in the water? You're not much different when you go to Amazon or when you go shopping and there's that beautiful shiny thing bobbing up and down there going, ooh, buy me, get me, take me home. And what happens as soon as you take a bite? You're hooked, right? And then it's reeling you in. It's like, suck, I got you now. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. If you spend over this amount, if you get to $35, $50, $70, $100, free shipping. Well, it's free, honey. How can I say no to free? Well, we'll give you 20% off if you spend this much. Well, I didn't need that much, but 20%? Think about how much I'm saving in the long run. (laughs) Been there, done that? Anybody else? Just me? Okay, well, the whole point of this is, can we be content? What does it mean to be content? Here's my working definition. I reserve the right to change it at any time. Content means to be satisfied with what we have, whether we get more or not. Man, why did you do this series before Christmas, Pastor? There's a really good reason to be satisfied with what we have, whether we get more or not. And here is where the rubber meets the road. I remember uh, many years ago, well over 10 years ago, probably somewhere around 14 years ago, we were doing uh, Christmas with family. And we had, at that time, one son in the family, 
my wife and I didn't have any, so this would be my brother-in-law's kids, and it was his, his oldest, and I feel bad telling this story, but he was like two or three or whatever he was at the time. He was a kid, right? You remember when you had kids, you have kids. You remember when you were a kid, maybe not. But it was Christmas morning. There are, he's got more presents than everybody except for my wife because she's the golden child in the family. And uh, I'm just kidding. And there's toys everywhere. There's presents everywhere. And he's going through and he's opening this wrapping paper. You know, trying to shove wrapping paper into trash bags. You know what I mean? You've got it sitting in piles all over the place. And my, my wife's family is very structured. Like my family is one, two, three, go. Her family is like, okay, we go youngest to oldest and we rotate back around. Everybody opens one, everybody opens one and it takes forever. And like my family is a little too ADHD for that. We can't handle that. And so I think he was a little overwhelmed with waiting and then opening and then waiting and then opening. And this, he starts to have a meltdown. Now I actually have this moment on an old cell phone. The video quality is so terrible. I literally could have showed you. It'd be so grainy because it was like 14 years ago or something like that. And uh, I'm recording. And at the exact moment where he starts to have a meltdown, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm probably not going to record this part. And I turn it off. And it's too bad I turned it off because we missed a glorious moment. He's having it out now with his dad. He's screaming. He's fighting. He's fussing. He's two, three years old, whatever he was at the time. And all of a sudden, his dad says, no, you can't have that present. That present's not yours. That's somebody else's present. He just wants to open more presents. And all of a sudden, he turns around, and he grabs the first thing that he sees and claims it for himself. And do you know what he grabbed? One of the bags of trash. And he says, my trash. And his dad, of course, seeing the irony of the moment, looks at him and says, okay, son, you can have it. And then he says, but I don't want it. <laughs> And he realized the irony of the whole thing. Where are all of those toys going to go one day? In the trash. trash. Every single one of them. In fact, if your kids are at all like my kids are, they're going to enjoy the box that the toy came in at that age more than the toy itself anyway. Because every parent in America knows the irony of this, don't you? The irony of this is this. Your kids would rather play with you than the toy. Let that one sink in for a minute. When was the last time you bought a kid, your kid, a grandkid, a toy, hoping that it would distract them long enough for you to take a nap on Christmas Day, and you get to noon and your kids say, I'm bored and I have nothing to play with. And you are looking at a room full of wrapping paper and toys, and you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can you have nothing to play with? And the answer is, The toy was never the point, was it? This is a lesson that we should have learned at three years old. But here we are, however many years or decades later, and we're still learning the same lesson that God was trying to teach us then. There is no thing in the world that could give you joy or satisfaction that is lasting apart from God himself. God's rigged the world against you. It's not your fault. You weren't born to know this lesson. You had to learn it along the way. And if you're like me, you have to keep learning it. I find this one really ironic. There's a guy in the Bible. His name is Paul. Now, Paul wrote roughly two-thirds of the New Testament. We call him the Apostle Paul. You may have heard of him before. He's a guy on the road to Damascus, gets blinded by the light, and wakes up like a... Deuce, you know, the runner in the night, that guy? Anyway, I have no idea what that song means. If that's inappropriate, I don't even know if I said the right word. Does anybody know what the words are to that song? Anyway, Paul says this. I should get back on task here. Paul says this, Philippians chapter four. He says this, ready? I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I want you to notice two things here. For I have, everybody say this with me. Ready? One, two, three. Learn to be content, whatever those circumstances. And then guess what? He says it again. I have learned the secret of being content. He's learned it. In other words, he didn't just know it. Now, Paul, can you please tell us, when did you learn the secret? Crickets. Crickets. What we know of Paul's life is he grew up as as a Pharisee, probably the middle class or upper, upper middle class of his day. He had resources. In a culture where you pretty much had the rich and the really poor and a very tiny middle class. So if he grew up in that middle class, upper middle class, or even possibly the rich part of society, he had access to resources. But then he became a Christian missionary traveling all over the world. And we know from his writings, the life that he lived, he basically, every money that was given into him, he often used it to advance ministry. So he often used it to pay for those who were traveling with him. So he wasn't living in luxury. In fact, in Corinthians, at one point, he talks about being whipped and beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and hungry and and desperate and destitute and, and cold and shivering and a whole slew of other things. And it's this guy who says, I had to learn it. Like, there was a point where I had more than enough, and then there was a point where I didn't have enough, and I had to learn to be content. So give yourself some grace for a minute. If you struggle with discontentment, I want you to give yourself some grace and go, you know what? I need to learn this art also. However, how do we learn this? Well, I was listening to a sermon to prepare for this message, and I came across a guy by the name of Andy Stanley. Some of you may have heard of Andy. He's a pastor in Georgia, a large church down there, and he did a great little sermon, but he had this phrase. I thought, I need to steal that. So I want to give Andy credit, but here was his phrase. Andy says this, until you discover what you value You will never get what you really want. I'm going to let that one sink in for a second. I'm going to say it again. I might even say it a third time. Until you discover what you value, you will never get what you really want. Again, two-year-old, (laughs) three-year-old, who can learn from them? But did he really want a bag of trash? No. No. In that particular moment, he was just throwing a fit. But what about you? When was the last time you bought something new and you believed that thing was going to do something for you? Whatever that thing is. Maybe a brand new outfit. I mean, let's just be honest. When you buy a brand new outfit, isn't the goal because the last time you bought an outfit, somebody went, man, that looks really good on you. And so what is it that you really want? Is it the new outfit or is it the the pat on the back of somebody saying, you look good? And is that such an evil thing? Well, no, not necessarily. When was the last time you bought a car? Was the reason you bought the car because your car was dying and couldn't survive any longer? For some of you, I know that'll be true. Or did you buy a new car because you envisioned yourself driving down the road and everybody else looking at you? And in your mind, every person who's looking at you is going, man, whew. They got it going on. What about your house? Your spouse? Do we need to keep going? You're like, pastor, just stop now, right? (laughs) Until you know what it is you really want, you're never going to be able to get what you value the most. I remember um, 
this was kind of an eye-opener for me. I was talking with my uh, dad just a couple years ago, and my dad had never used this phrase, but in this conversation, he used this phrase. He said something to the effect of he was talking, blah, 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 and then he said, this dream or vision that I had for my family, blah, blah, blah. Well, we were at dinner, and I let him keep going and say what he was saying, but I came back to that thought. I said, Dad, what, what did you mean by what you just said? Again, this is a couple years ago. So, like, again, I'm in my 40s, so I was probably still in my 40s at that point. You think about how many years have gone in my life. And what I took away from that, and it had never dawned on me, my dad had a vision for our family. Does that make sense? My dad had a dream for our family, an idea in mind of where he wanted to see it go. And so he was making decisions every day to accomplish that dream. Now, I know this about you because this is normal human nature. You have a dream for your life. You have a dream for your family. But if you don't sit down and figure out what it is, you might actually arrive at the destination and find you missed the mark. Have you ever heard that analogy of putting the ladder up against the wrong wall? You can get to the top of it, but then when you get up there, did you really get what you needed in the first place? And that's the idea here that I want you to hold on to. So how do we know if we're climbing the right ladder? How do we know if we're arriving at the right destination? How do we know if we're going in the right direction? I want to give you just a few simple scriptures to help guide you in this process. Ready? First one's going to come out of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, Before we read this verse, you need to know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of debate among scholars as to exactly who wrote the book. I believe Solomon wrote the book. We could talk about that some other day, some other time. If Solomon did write the book, like I believe and most scholars do believe, what's interesting is this. Solomon was awarded by God wisdom like the world had never seen. And so Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. We believe he wrote the book towards the end of his life, reflecting back on his life. And he's writing this most likely to his son or sons, his children, and saying, hey, You need to really think about these things. And the whole book is really kind of about wisdom. He's encouraging his children, seek after wisdom. But not only that, but Solomon, because of his wisdom, became unbelievably wealthy. He he gained access to resources like the world has never known. However, as he chased after those resources, he found that life was not all that it was cracked up to be. That he had more and more chariots and more and more vineyards and more and more land and actually more and more wives He had something like a thousand women in his life that were committed to him. Like many kings of his day, he was marrying uh, the daughters of the foreign kings in order to establish power and might and stop trusting in the hand of Almighty God. And no matter how much he got, it was never enough. So he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all the toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You ever try to chase the wind? Have you caught it yet? Even if the wind is blowing right at you, you don't even have to do any chasing, right? You just open up your hands and squeeze. You ever get it? That is exactly what Solomon is saying. No matter how many vineyards I had, I never had enough. No matter how many outfits I had, I never had enough. No matter how big my house got, his house was so much bigger than even God's house. It was never enough. No matter how many women he had, never enough. He could always look at somebody else who had something else different than him and go, I need that too. In fact, the word here for meaningless is the Hebrew word hebel. And it's fascinating because this word here literally means this. Ready? You see it? Do you see it? Do you still see it? Can you still see it? Oh, let me try it again. Ready? Tell me how long you can see it for. Here it is. 
You got it? You still see it? The lights are on it? It's gone. That's actually the Hebrew word for meaningless. It actually is the word vapor. So you'll often find when you read, especially Hebrew, but even Greek words, what we find is a word picture. And you have to understand the word picture in order to bring it into your language and to translate it. If they were to take every Hebrew word and translate it literally, first of all, it would read really clunky in our language. But second of all, it would be so big because you'd constantly be translating word pictures. So we take this meaningless because that's what it ultimately means. That's what they're trying to communicate. But it literally means vapor. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next, like everything you've ever bought. Make sense? So this is what Solomon is trying to imprint upon your heart. Chasing after things is meaningless. They're here one minute, and at goodwill the next. They don't last very long. Now, Jesus is building on this because he later tells a story about some workers who get really frustrated with God. Here's how that story goes. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, what happens next is there's more work to be done. So the master goes out into the field, or sorry, out into the public area, and he keeps finding people just standing there. You never see a movie, people are standing there. And he comes by and he says, hey, what are you doing? You got any work for the day? No. Hey, you come on in. Uh, you work, and I'll give you a denarius for the day. So imagine this. He goes out at 6 in the morning, goes out at 9 in the morning, goes out at 12 at noon, he goes out again at 2, he goes out again at 5, he keeps going out, and every time he finds people standing there needing work, and he says, hey, you come work for me, I'm going to pay you denarius for the day. So then it comes time to take care of everybody and square up the day's work. And here's what happens at the end of the parable. Verse 9. The workers who were hired about five in the morning came and each received a denarius. That's what he said he would pay them. So then those who came, sorry, so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. In other words, he paid the guy hired at 5 p.m. the same amount he paid the guy hired at 5 a.m. And everybody went, that's not, say it with me, fair. I worked harder, I worked longer, and oh, by the way, I worked in the heat of the day. They came in as the sun was going down in the cool of the night. They got to sit on their tushies all day long and do nothing. But then, the guy who owned the field in the first place, he says, no, wait a minute. Verse 12, but he answered them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Right? Like that was the agreement. You do this, I'll give you that, right? So take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Now, why is this powerful? I think there are two major takeaways. Number one, Jesus is letting the Hebrew Jewish men and women of his day, especially the religious elite, he's letting them know God is now taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's us, unless you happen to be Jewish of Jewish descent, and there are some in our church, but that would be most of us. 
Now, if you were a Gentile descent, part of what Jesus is addressing in his culture, he's saying to the Jewish crowd, look, you've had um, the Old Testament for years. You've had the promises and the prophecies for years to point you to Jesus for years. I'm going to give you exactly what I'm going to give them. And he's anticipating they're going to say, that's not fair. We've been your people. We've been following after you. We had to go through all this stuff in the Old Testament. They didn't have to go through any of that. That's not fair. And Jesus is saying, what do you care? Why do you care so much? And the real problem here is jealousy. It's envy. Get it? The real problem for them is the same problem for us. When we look at what God does in somebody else's life and we feel in our hearts, that's not fair. I work just as hard as they do. In fact, some of you probably can honestly say, I work harder than they do. Why do they get all that nice stuff, God? That's not fair. Well, here's a little tip. Uh, I use this often with my kids, but fairness ended in the garden. We don't live in a fair world. But that's not really the point of what Jesus is saying. Let me ask you a question. My son, um, my oldest son, he loves numbers, he loves science, he loves astronomy, and he has really gotten into studying uh, big, big, big numbers. Tree three, and some of you don't even know what those are. I don't either, by the way, but he loves those kinds of things. And he loves to study the concept, because it's not even a number, of infinity. Do you know what infinity is? Infinity is, it has no end. So, like, you know, you're playing that game with your kids, right? And you're like, well, I love you 100. Well, I love you 3,000 or whatever, right? Well, I love you infinity. And I always just say, I love you infinity plus one. And they say, well, I love you infinity plus 100. It's like, it's too late. I'm already one more than that. I'm already a step ahead of you. Because infinity never stops. Now, what God is promising all of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ is infinity. We call it eternity. Everlasting life. It doesn't end. You don't go from this life to death. You go from this life to life. This is exactly why when Jesus is on the boat with the disciples and the storm comes up and they all think they're gonna die and Jesus is taking a nap. And he wakes up and before, like he rebukes the storm and he looks at them and he's like, what are you so afraid of? Like even if the ship took us all out right now, which it can't do because that can't be the end of Jesus' story. But even if that's what happened, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of dying? I mean, if you believe in me, you're going to go from death to life, eternal, infinite life. So now, here's my question for you. Can you divide infinity? How much can I divide infinity to to give you a portion that's bigger or smaller than anybody else? Do you get the point? Jesus is trying to say there's literally no reason for you to be jealous or envious of anyone else. All the stuff that they have that looks so good, is so attractive, is so unfair to you, it's all going to stay behind in the trash dump. Are you with me? So the secret to contentment is understanding that everything here stays and everything eternal goes, and I want to go with eternal things into infinity and beyond and find there is more than enough of God for me there. Life everlasting. So why fall for the bait on the hook? All right, I want to give you a few key secrets to contentment here. You ready? It comes right out of the stories that I'm telling you, the passages I'm showing you. 
The first key to contentment, the first secret, if you will, to contentment is this. Be thankful. Be thankful. Everything you have comes from God. Remember, Paul said, I've learned to be content whether I have a lot or I am in want. Notice he didn't say, or I am in need. Look, if you're starving, if you're literally thirsting to death, if you are sleeping on a bench because you you can't keep the snow off you, there's a huge difference between needs and wants. That's exactly what Paul's trying to get to in that passage we looked at last week at Timothy. We're saying if we have food and clothing, and I said even shelter, we will be okay. We'll be content. So there's huge difference in discerning in my own heart what I really want, the difference between wants and needs. If I don't need anything, then I'm good. I'm good. If I get more, great. If I don't, so be it. Notice in the very next verse in Matthew, that story that Jesus just told about the workers, says this in 2015. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? This is the owner of the field. He says, are you envious because I am generous? Think about that for a minute. What the master of the field, which you know points to God himself, is saying is, look, I can, it's my money. If I want to give the same amount to this person as I do to this person, and this person didn't work as long or as hard as this person, isn't it my money? There's such a principle in that, by the way. This is why every year at Christmas, I've decided I'm just going to pick one family member and give them all the presents. No, I'm just kidding. I won't really do that. But we still feel like, that's not fair. And God's going, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you can't divide infinity, divide infinity. And second of all, it's mine. If I want to give more to this person, and why would God give more to this person? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes different people have the capacity to handle more than other people do. Sometimes it's not about capacity. Sometimes God knows that by certain people having more, it might actually lead them to him. Because God knows that at the end of more and more and more stuff is not more and more and more happiness. He knows that. When my wife and I first got married and I was 23 and she was 22, I was an intern making $500 a month. Now, my apartment was paid for, but it didn't cover any of the utilities or anything. It didn't cover any of my insurance or anything. My wife had to get a job and we were scraping to make it most every single paycheck. There were times, and I've told you this before, but we would write out the checks and knew that the last one to cash was gonna be in trouble. (laughs) We knew that, and the first check we always wrote was the check to the church. And it was amazing how God would show up. Literally, somebody in the church would walk up to us, say, hey, um, just wanted to say how much we appreciate your ministry. Here's like $25, here's $50. You guys go on a date on us. We'd take that, we'd put it in the bank, and it's funny, we'd have like five bucks left over. We'd literally go eat on the dollar menu at McDonald's and rent a movie from like Blockbuster for a dollar because there wasn't, any, that was back in those days. Remember that? Anybody remember Blockbuster? <laughs> Anybody? All right, all right. And that'd be our $5, and that was like our date for the month, and we'd be praising Jesus because it worked. I don't know how it worked, but it worked. And I'll tell you what, the reason I tell you that story is because I was no happier then or less happier then than I am today. And I thank God that I'm not literally living paycheck to paycheck. And if that's you, we want to get you some help. Because many people living paycheck to paycheck don't have to be. They choose to be. And we had to go through some hard seasons in life of going, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. We need to change our spending and change our investing and change what we're driving and change how we're living because it doesn't have to be this way. That's why in January, we're gonna offer Financial Peace University, FPU, to help you figure out how to navigate your finances in a way that doesn't have to overwhelm you and crush you under its weight. The point here, though, is to give thanks to God. God, thank you, whether I have just enough or whether I have plenty. 
God, thank you. The first secret to contentment is to just be thankful that all that God has actually blessed you with. Go read Philippians 4 sometimes. And to be thankful in all circumstances. Be prayerful in all circumstances. By offering prayers and petitions and thanksgiving, making your, your request to God. So if you don't know that passage, so powerful. Because Paul is telling you, in part, his secret to contentment is to pray and to praise and to pray and to praise over and over and over and over and over and over again and to lay it out before your heavenly father and say, God, I trust you. I don't know where it's gonna come from next, but you're gonna make it happen. You're gonna make it happen. So here I am. All right, the second secret to contentment is this. Ready? This one may catch you off guard. Work hard. Laziness ain't gonna help you. That's good English, right? But I'm serious. If you're sitting back and waiting for God to pay the bills, it's not going to happen miraculously that way. It's going to take hard work. Hard work is not the opposite of faith. Do I need to say that one again for somebody here? Hard work is not the opposite of faith. How do I know? Well, look at Ecclesiastes. Remember that passage I told you about Solomon and everything is worthless and meaningless because it's vapor, it's here one minute, it's gone the next. Well, Solomon anticipates that some will see the same thing he's seeing and they'll say to themselves, you know what? I don't think there's any point in working anyway. There's no point to life, right? I mean, you, you read this in stories and people, I lived in Colorado. There were people all over the place who had this kind of perspective. What's the point anyway? Nothing really has any meaning. Well, notice what he says in Ecclesiastes 4 or 5. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. In other words, if you're looking at the same thing Solomon's looking at and you're coming to the same conclusions he's coming to, it's all meaningless. The answer isn't to go, well, then I'm just gonna do nothing. That's a silly conclusion, Solomon would say. You're gonna ruin your life. You're gonna ruin your family's life. In other words, get up off your tushy and work hard. All right, that one's simple. Okay, but then let's say I do get up and I do work hard. Maybe I take one job or two jobs or three jobs or four jobs or five jobs. How much is too much work? How much is too much stuff? Remember where we started, this quote by Andy Stanley, until you really know what you value most, you'll never get what you want. That's why the thing you have to value most is God himself. So this third secret to contentment is to make peace with God. Make peace in your heart with God. Notice in Ecclesiastes again, the very, very next verse. So verse four is, it's all meaningless. Verse five is, work hard, don't quit. But then verse six is, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with, and this word tranquility could be translated peace, than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This is why most of us hate Proverbs in the Bible. You're like, yeah, that's really not helpful. Thank you. Break this down for a second, okay? Basically what he's saying is better to have one handful, whatever it is, right? And have peace in your heart than have two and have no peace and still striving. How much is one handful? Well, one handful is enough to take care of myself and my family. That's one handful. Two handfuls, that might be that second or third or fourth job. That extra thing you keep doing, those extra hours you keep putting in to climb the ladder for the extra accolades, for the extra paycheck, for the time and the half. I don't know what it is in your story. It's the extra, 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 and you're killing yourself and you're leaving behind you awake. You ever be in a boat or see a boat in the middle of a lake and as it's going, the faster that it goes, and it's leaving behind these massive ripples behind it, 
and those ripples are hitting the other people in your life and they're knocking them over and they're crushing them? What is driving that in you? What is it that you really value the most? Do you have a vision for your life or your family's life that is pushing you? And if so, is that vision taking you where you really wanna go? The secret to contentment is to make peace with God because when I'm at peace with God, then at the end of my days, when all my stuff goes back in the trash bag and I finally throw it in the dumpster or my kids do or my grandkids do or whoever ends up being the one to carry that burden, like I'm good with God because this stuff never defined me. I'm never enough because I have more of this and I'm never less because I have less of it. I'm simply good because I'm good with God and my identity comes from who God says that I am. And I'm a child of God, loved and adored and precious to him. And if I don't ever hear another person tell me, you look good, I'm good. If I don't ever hear another person pat me on the back and say, hey, great job out there, I'm all right. Because my heavenly father does it every single day. Yeah. Clap for God on that one. Proverbs 14.30, Solomon writes, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Right now, are you looking at somebody else's stuff and wishing you had it? Is it driving you? Listen, this could be a spouse, a kid, a car, an outfit, a grade, an athlete? Is there something that somebody else has that you're like, I can't be happy unless? Let me tell you, if that's the case for you, you will never find peace and you'll never find joy. That's why my fourth and last secret for today is this. Enjoy all that God has given and I want to emphasize this, you. Enjoy all God has given you. When my identity is anchored in God, then things have their rightful place. When, as Jesus says in Matthew, uh, I believe it's Matthew 5, sometimes I get Matthew 5 and 6 confused, but he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things are going to fall into place for you. God will take care of all these other things, but seek first his kingdom. That's the point. You're first in my heart, God. Nothing is gonna replace that, nothing. No amount of thing that's gonna one day end up in the trash is gonna replace you, you're first. So then when that's the case, everything else has its place. So then driving a car, even a nice car, who cares? It's just a thing, that's it, it's just a thing. An outfit, it's just a thing. It's a nice thing, it's a thing, it's a blessing from God, praise God, thank you God for the things that you've given me. Shoes, it's a thing. Thank you, God, for the thing that you gave me. My spouse, they may drive me crazy at times, but God, thank you for giving me this spouse because this spouse is part of your work in my life to make me more like Jesus. My kids, even my boss or my job. See, with God as first, all these other things fall into place. I could just simply say, God, thank you. I don't understand all that you're doing in all these things, but I trust you. I'm gonna show you a passage I showed you last week, but I hope this gives a little more context to it. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. And then notice that key phrase there, for our enjoyment. 
God has given you everything that you have for your enjoyment. What a beautiful God we serve that he's blessed you and he's blessed me and we get to just stop and say thank you. Which brings us back to this little phrase by Andy Stanley, until you discover what you value, you will never get what you really want. Are you valuing what is most important? All right, I'm gonna close with this. When I was in high school, I, my mom and dad would buy me these like little posters and I'd put them in my locker. And one of the ones they bought me was, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I would read that before I go to gym class. I'd think, all right, today I'm gonna take on these older kids, right? Like I'm a freshman, I'm gonna take on these seniors, let's do it. Before I go out to track, I had just broke my pelvic bone in eighth grade, so here I am a freshman. I'm like, all right, God, my pelvic bone's still healing. I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then I'd go out my pelvic bone to start hurting and I'd still be limping around the track and I'd be thinking, God, this stinks. Where's your power at work in me? Did you know that that verse has nothing to do with your next race? That has nothing to do with your next job promotion. It has everything to do with the secret to contentment. Notice the chapter and the verse. Notice this is earlier. When Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret to contentment. What is the secret, Paul? At the end of the day, the secret is that. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. I can live in this world in a way that makes no sense because it's God in me empowering me to be thankful for all that I have, to be content with what I have, to work hard, to please him, and then to enjoy the fruits of the labor. Thank you, God, for your spirit at work in me. To that end, let's say a prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives us strength. So Father, right now, for any man, woman, or child watching this series, we pray they didn't tune out and turn it off because it was too hard or offensive. Instead, Father, we pray you would draw us into you, draw us near to you, Father, and that you would give us the strength that we need to be content with what we have, to work hard, yes, but not to strive hard, God, not to look for things to satisfy and fulfill, but instead to turn to you, Father, and because of that, to give you praise. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. amen.